I wish the rest of you would cry when you don't get to hear me preach like that. <laughs> Mom and dad are pushing them out of here. Just wants to stay and listen to Pastor James. Man, it's awesome. Hey, a uh, couple commercials real quick before we get started. Uh, in small group this morning, you should have had a Christmas card uh, from the, uh, our, our, our mission friends over in South Asia, the Kishores. And uh, so if you didn't pick that up, they, we have some of those, I think, in the foyer. I know they're back here in the coffee area as well. And there's also a little magnet that says Reach Nadia. That's also from them, something you can put on your uh, refrigerator if it's magnetic. And it gives you an opportunity every time you reach in there to get a jug of milk for, uh, for your coffee or something. You can see, hey, Nadia, that's, that's a place that I need to be praying for uh, and asking the Lord to do a wonderful work. And it just says there's 2,639 villages in this area of that part of the country with 257 unreached people groups making up those villages. So there's vast work still to be done there in that area, and I love what they are doing, and I love our partnership with them, and so I want to encourage you to get those two things and become a prayer warrior with them and pray for them, pray for their work. God has uh, been doing a great thing there, even this past week. Um, we got a word from them and just telling us things that happened, spiritual warfare and things like that. There was sickness in them. Their dog got sick. That's a little pup. Um, they had issues with neighbors and the local authorities, and so just tons of things happening, even while uh, a team was flying in to do about three weeks of ministry over this Christmas holiday. And so uh, it's no surprise that the enemy would raise up and try to put a stop to that when such good things are happening. So we want to pray for them, lift them before the Father, and uh, ask God's continued blessing upon them. If you will, grab your Bible and put one finger in John chapter 1. Take another finger and put it in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read from Luke 2 first, and then we're going to spend our time in John chapter 1 for the remainder of the message this morning. For those of you who are my age or a little older, you remember someone on the radio named Paul Harvey. He used to end his broadcast with, that's the rest of the story. Well, I want to share a story that he uh, shared on his radio program many, many years ago. He says this. One raw winter night, a man heard an irregular thumping sound against the kitchen storm door. He went out to a window and watched as tiny shivering sparrows, attracted to the evident warmth inside, beat in vain upon the glass. Touched, this farmer bundled up and he trudged through fresh snow to open the barn for the struggling birds. He turned the lights on, he tossed some hay into the corner of the barn, and he even sprinkled a trail of saltine crackers so that the little birds could find their way into the barn. But those sparrows, which had scattered when he opened the door, still hid in the darkness, afraid of him. Farmer tried various tactics to get them into the barn. He circled behind them, trying to drive them into the into the barn, into the warmth. He even tossed cracker crumbs up in the air toward them, hoping that that would somehow lead them into the barn. And he even went and retreated into the house, thinking maybe they'll just kind of find them, them, their way into the barn on their own. But all of his attempts led to nothing. Nothing worked. They didn't go into the barn. And so the reason is they saw him as this huge alien creature and were terrified of him. And if only they could understand that his intentions were to help them. So he withdrew to this house and he watched there through the window with these sparrows doomed to suffer from the, the, the cold weather and the snow. And as he stared out the window and watched these birds, a thought began to hit him like lightning from a clear blue sky. He thought of this. 
If only I could become a bird, if I could become one of them just for a moment, then I wouldn't frighten them so much. In fact, I could show them the way to warmth. I could show them the way to safety. And even as he thought of that, he began to realize, hey, this is what the incarnation is all about. He grasped the whole principle of what the incarnation is. Paul Harvey went on to say, a man's becoming a bird is nothing compared to God becoming a man. The very concept of a sovereign being as big as the universe that he created, confining himself to a human body, was and is too much for some people to believe. And that's the truth. Today, there are many people who would, uh, who would uh, scoff at Christmas. They would scoff at our belief that God came in the form of Jesus Christ, a human being. They think of the incarnation and they see it's an impossibility. For them, it's, not, it's something they cannot believe in. And yet it is the clear teaching that we see in the Bible. And so if you've got your finger there in Luke chapter 2, I want us to read what this night was like when Jesus entered the picture. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through 21. Today we're reading a lot of scripture, which is a good thing. In those days, Luke says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known, to the, known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived... In the womb. During Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, the birth. That's what we've just read here in Luke 2. 
During Christmas, we make much of Jesus coming as God the Son, dwelling with mankind. And, and so that's what we're doing this Christmas season. We're looking at this idea of Emmanuel. We're looking at what the Bible says of God being with us, dwelling with humanity. And so we're going back to the very cre- beginning of creation, and we're tracking this idea, this concept through salvation history. We began looking at Emmanuel in the garden, there in Eden, there in the very beginning of creation. We looked at Emmanuel in the tabernacle and the temple last Sunday. Today we're looking at Emmanuel in the flesh. God with us in human flesh. No longer foreshadowed, no longer uh, portrayed, no longer a little glimpse of what he's going to look like. Now he's bold and right in front of us. As we think of the incarnation, which is God dwelling with us, this theological concept of God becoming a man, taking on human flesh, is what we call the incarnation. It's a biblical idea, and yet if you read your Bible through, you're never going to see the word incarnation. It's a biblical idea, but it's not a biblical term. Its Christian use is derived from the Latin version of John chapter 1, verse 14. And, and so that word there that's translated in Latin, to dwell, it, we see it come up in, in Christian authors, Latin Christian authors, beginning in A.D. 300 and onward. As we use it today to speak of God coming in human flesh. As a biblical teaching, incarnation refers to the affirmation that God in one of his persons, the second person, this part of the Trinity, and without any ceasing, has come to be the one God, but has shown himself in humanity or as a human for the salvation of mankind. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, is the incarnate word. He is the son of God, and he is the focus of the God-human encounter. In other words, we cannot know God but through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This God-man, or as this God-man, Jesus mediates God to humans. And as the man-God, he represents humanity to God. He is the bridge that leads us to the Father. So through a faith union with him, men, women, as adopted children of God, participate in his filial relationship to the Father. We are only connected to the Father through the Son. As we think about, as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ this season, I want us to remember, as we've said over the last two Sundays, that this idea of dwelling with man is not related and isolated only to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It has always been God's plan. It has always been God's desire. We've seen it in the garden. We've seen it in the tabernacle. And this morning, it will be on full display in the flesh. And so there's three theological truths that I want to point out things that I believe we need to recognize as we think about Jesus in the flesh or God with us in the flesh. Here's the first thing. The transcendent Son of God entered time and space. John chapter 1. Look with me at verse 1. See what the Apostle John had to say about Jesus, the Son of God, entering time and space. It says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
God has entered time and space. You know, as much as our words reveal to others our hearts and our minds, what John is telling us here is that Jesus, as the Word of God, reveals God's heart and His mind to us. Well, what are words made of? Any grammar experts in here? As you think about a word, words are made of letters. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. If you know the Greek alphabet, that's the first letter in the Greek alphabet. And Omega is the last word in the uh, Greek alphabet. In other words, he is the beginning and the end. He is the totality of the word of God to us. He's the totality of God expressing himself and revealing himself to humanity. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, that Jesus Christ is God's final word to man. In other words, he's the climax of everything the Bible has been speaking. Every, every aspect, every bit of divine revelation culminates in Jesus Christ. He is the word. He has stepped in to time and space. What we discover as we read the record that these first few verses in John's gospel here reveal is that Jesus was more than a written word. We're not just reading about a character. He's not just words on a page. He's more than a prophetic word, something said by a prophet about something in the future. We learn he's the living word and he's dwelling with man. Man has a God who's come to him. So the message from these verses tell us that God is not a fable. He's not a mythological character. He's not a hopeful wish by someone who's hoping for a better day. God is not an ideology. He's not a religious figure. No, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the eternal Word. John tells us that he existed in the beginning. That is, not because he had a beginning himself. He, he's speaking of his eternality, that Jesus existed and was there when things came into being. He is eternal. He is God, and he was with God. I love how Jesus speaks of himself in John 8, 58. He's speaking to Jews who are questioning him, and he says this, Before Abraham was, I am. The Greek verb there, to be, is amy. It speaks of the fact that he existed. He, he was there. In other words, we could translate it this way. Before Abraham was, I'd be. We would never say that in the English because we got to change the tense, but it makes perfect theological sense. Before Abraham ever came onto the scene, and he's the father of the nation of Israel, right? He's the great patriarch. And so every Jew back then would have said, we, we, we descend from Abraham. And Jesus is saying, before Abraham was ever a twinkle in his father's eye, I be. He's eternal. He's the living word, and this living word steps in to our time and space. We also learned from these verses that Jesus is the creative word. There's a clear and intentional parallel here between John 1.1 and Genesis 1.1. I think we touched on that a couple Sundays ago. So we learn here that God created the world through his word, and Jesus is the word through whom all things were created. Lastly, Jesus is the incarnate word. Jesus was not a phantom. He wasn't a spirit when he ministered here on earth, nor was his body a mere illusion. No, Jesus was here in physical form. He had a body. There was blood running through his veins. See, John and the other disciples all had a personal experience with Jesus. They knew him to not just be a spirit, but he was a body. He was a person. 
And even though John's emphasis in his gospel is the deity of Christ, what John is making clear is that the Son of God came in the flesh and he was subject to all of the infirmities that we know as human beings. i got to believe that there was seasons in Jesus' life, just like there's seasons in our life, where he caught a cold and he got sick because that's part of living in the natural world that we live in today. Jesus was fully human and yet fully God. And so why is it important that I'm pointing out the fact that the Son of God, transcendent God, steps into time and space? What's the big deal with that? I believe it's essential because it takes us back to Eden. Remember what Eden was like. Remember what the garden was all to be. You see, there in the garden, we noticed last or two Sundays ago that in the garden, what did God do with Adam and Eve? He walked and he talked and he fellowshiped with humanity. He had a relationship there. Now, we know that sin broke that. We know that that relationship was severed there. But we also know that it didn't change God's intention. It didn't change God's mind about humanity. He didn't wipe his hands clean and say, I'm done with them and I'm going to start over. No, God pursues Adam and Eve, even in their brokenness promises a Messiah, and he foreshadows what was going to come through the Messiah in the clothing from those animal skins. And so as we think about God stepping out from, from heaven and, and stepping out of his transcendency and coming into time and space, it tells us that God wants to be near us. He wants to be close to us. He wants to be with us. He's pursuing us. Today, as we think about the transcendent of God entering time and space, it ought to remind us that God is near. I want you to think about this. As God, as creator God, when God spoke everything into existence in Genesis 1, there in Genesis 2, we don't see God stepping away from his creation. That's one of the beauties of what the Bible teaches us about who God is. And most other type of traditions and religions, when their creator God or however things come into existence from their perspective, that creator God steps away. But in our perspective, from what the Bible teaches us, is God always steps in. He's transcendent. He's above. He's beyond what we have in this world. But he's not, not with us. He steps into his creation. Even in our brokenness and our sin, he pursues us. And so it's a significant thing that God, the creator, is also God, the redeemer, and he's pursuing us every step of the way. He steps toward his creation. God is near, which brings us to a second theological truth we need to recognize. Here it is. The glorious son of God manifested the presence of God. Look again at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is John saying here? What we're seeing is that in Jesus Christ, the word was made flesh and what? Dwelt among us. Came to take up residence, tabernacled alongside us. According to Timothy George, this is not only a key Christological affirmation, but also it is a crucial statement about God. It's telling us something significant about who he is. I want you to remember this. What happens with Ezekiel? Ezekiel, the prophet there, as the people of God are being exiled or have been exiled or the temple has been destroyed and all of that happens, what happens? The Shekinah glory leaves Israel. But what happens in Jesus Christ? The Shekinah glory comes again. 
right? The, the, the glory, the, the dwelling of God is now departed. There's no temple. There's no worship. The people of God are not even in the land. And yet, in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel comes to be with us. The glory returns. But now it's not in a tabernacle. It's not in a tent. It's not even in a temple made of stone and mortar. As beautiful as the temple was, now it's different. It's in a person. And he's dwelling with us. It's not in a location. It's right next to us. Jesus comes personally. And Jesus comes to, to manifest the presence of Almighty God. You see, what we have in Jesus is meekness and majesty. We have manhood and deity. All of that in perfect harmony with one another. It ought to blow our minds to think about how can divine God take up residence in human flesh. And yet this is the man called Jesus, who is God. Many would debate the deity of Christ today. In fact, it's been debated from the very beginning. It was debated even during the days of Jesus and the days following Jesus. Jesus was crucified. Why? Because he dared to call himself the Son of God. He dared to claim that he was God. Even in the verse that I quoted earlier, John 8, 58, when he says, Before Abraham was, I be, I am. He's saying, I am God. And that took him to the cross. It's always been debated whether or not Jesus was in fact God. Later in the 4th century, in the 5th century, there were various challenges to the full deity of Christ one particular man is, was named Arius. He was a priest from Alexandria. And he held to the belief that Jesus was a created being with a finite nature and thus not co-equal with the Father. He famously made this statement. There was once when he was not. You know what that means? What Arius was alleging, what Arius was teaching, what his followers were believing was that Jesus was not God, he is the son in the sense that he's created. There was a time when he did not exist. And so this was greatly debated there in the early centuries of the church. And so it led to great discussions and debates. And, and they were trying to wrestle, where's the truth in this? What's the big deal about this? And why is this a big deal? And so the early leaders there in the fourth century gathered in, in, in Nicaea. there at a council meeting. And they debated over the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They came up with the Nicene Creed that declared the deity of Christ. And yet the debate was not fully put to bed. It was revisited and debated again in Constantinople in 381. It was debated again in Ephesus in 431. And then in Chalcedon in 451, the council met together and solidified what they believed as the church about the deity of Christ. We know it as the definition of faith. And I want you to see part of what is stated in the de definition of faith. They said, following then, the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice teach that it is to be confessed that our Lord Jesus Christ is one and the same God, perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, true God and true human, with a rational soul and a body, of one substance with a father in his divinity and one and of one substance with us in his humanity in every way like us with the only exception of sin begotten of the father before all time in his divinity and also begotten in the latter days in his humanity of Mary the virgin bearer of God now why would i go to great lengths to talk about something from 
1,500 plus years ago. What's the big deal about a bunch of bishops getting together and wrestling on a theological issue? Anybody reading that kind of stuff these days? Or even as I say that, does it put you to sleep? Please don't say yes. That'll hurt my heart this morning. You'll be like, I don't care about that stuff. No big deal. It is a big deal. But what is the big deal here? F.F. Bruce in his commentary says this about Arius and these controversies, uh, similar controversies. He says this, in denying the consubstantiality, big word, of the son with the father, Arius broke down the bridge which Christianity had built between the transcendent deity and the insignificance of man. You see, I believe it's a big deal because what we see in Jesus Christ is God stepping toward us. And if it's not God in human flesh stepping toward us, then it ain't salvation. Right? What you have is the divinity of Almighty God taking a step toward a sinful, rebellious human being that wants nothing to do with God, thus will lead us to the third point. And so we see Jesus manifest the presence of Almighty God. And the New Testament writers affirm this over and over again. For instance, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So he's the image. He's the exact representation. That's what he's going to say in Hebrews in just a moment when I read that. But all the fullness dwelled in him. Not because he was created and God just said, all right, I'm going to put some God on you. No, he is the son of God. He is God. Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint, representation of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, Jesus as the Son of God, is God. He also, as the Son, reveals God to us. Go back to John. Look down there at verse 18. John tells us, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. John is telling us here that because of Jesus, we know who God is. He's the one who reveals him to us. As we think about who God is or what God is, his essence, as we think about that, the Bible would lead us to believe that God is invisible. There's no way that we can see God the Father. Mankind can see God revealed in nature. Psalm, uh, 11 would te- or Psalm 19 would tell us that. Romans 1 would tell us that, that there is general revelation. There's natural revelation. In other words, if you go to the Grand Canyon or, or, or we have a beautiful sunset, if you're out on the lake and you see the beauty of creation, you're thinking there's no way that happened by accident. So there's something behind this. We can know things about God, but we cannot know God or see God without somebody revealing him to us. Jesus alone reveals God to us. Now, some who know their Bible might take Exodus 33 and say, well, you may, pastor, say that you can't see God, and yet we read Exodus 33, and it seems like Moses saw God. But if you read that chapter, what you're seeing there is Moses had this desire. He had this want to, to see the glory of God. He even was so brash to say, I want to see your glory. And so God says, you can't see my glory if you saw my glory, you'd fall dead immediately. And so Moses kind of him, uh, hid himself in the cleft of the rock, and God covered him with his hand as he passed by. And then Moses was allowed to see his backside. 
The idea is there, he saw the over or the, the afterglow of his presence. Again, F.F. Bruce comments on this scene. He says, we should perhaps say, less anthropomorphically, but equally metaphorically, that what Moses saw, so to speak, is the afterglow of the divine glory. He didn't look at him in the face, but he saw his backside. He saw the after effects of the glory of Almighty God. Why? Because we cannot look upon the Father. But in Jesus, the Father's made known to us. That's what verse 8 is saying here. Verse 18 is saying here, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The Greek term there that we translate known is exegesato. It's the word from which we derive our English term exegesis. So as a preacher, I, I, I pride myself on being expositional in our delivery. In other words, what, we're, what we mean by exposition or exegesis is that we're taking what is there and we're lifting from it and we're giving the explanation. We're revealing the truth that's there. And then as a preacher, I, I try to give application. I try to give illustration so that there's a full understanding of what's going on. But exegesis is making known. It's revealing. And that's what Jesus does for us. He reveals the Father to us. He explains God. He interprets him for us. So we simply cannot understand God apart from knowing his son, Jesus Christ. And as we think about this glorious son of God manifesting the presence of God, we're reminded that Jesus, he's so much more than a rabbi. He's so much more than a prophet. He's so much more than a miracle worker. He's so much more than someone from history. No, what we see in Jesus is God in the flesh. What we see in Jesus is, is Emmanuel, who is God with us. You see, when we see and experience the presence of Jesus, we are encountering God. And this is good news because God can deal justly and graciously with our sin. That leads us to a third theological point. I want you to see the benevolent Son of God redeemed the condemned. Verse 12. John says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Son of God has entered time and space, and how did he do that? He came as a human being. He came manifesting the return of God's presence. The Shekinah glory had left the temple. It had left the people of Israel when they were exiled, and, and it did not return. I mean, we're, we're led to believe that in the Bible, that when they came back, that it was different. But when Jesus comes, he brings the presence of Almighty God. He brings the manifestation of Almighty God. So this was a glorious, and this was a gracious thing. Nevertheless, there's still a major hurdle here. There's still a major hurdle that's impeding God's desire to be with humanity. Any idea what that is? What would keep God being with his creation? It's sin. It's Eden all over again, right? God comes walking in the cool of the day, and what is Adam and Eve doing? They're hiding in the bushes. They've made coverings for themselves. They're seeking on their own moral autonomy, Separation from God, and yet God is pursuing. Sin has broken everything. And the sin of Adam and its curse are still holding every person in bondage. And Jesus, however, came to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21, so that all those who were sick with sin might be 
healed. I encourage you to go read that chapter, Numbers 21, and, and read how sin had broke out and, and caused, because of their sin, because of their rebellion, they were being bitten by these snakes. And Moses was instructed to fashion a, a bronze serpent and to lift that up and so that anyone who would look to the serpent would be healed from the snake bite. But those who would not look to it would die. It's a very beautiful picture of what Jesus came to do for us. He was lifted up on the cross so that we might be healed. It's exactly what Jesus is conveying to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. If you're reading through the Bible with us this year, this morning, you would have read this text. You would have seen how the priest Nicodemus comes to Jesus Christ. This teacher of the law came seeking Jesus. He wasn't sure what it meant for him, but the Lord told him that he must be born again through belief in his name and what he would do. You see, whoever believed would, would no longer be condemned, but would have eternal life. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus there in John chapter 3. The rest of the New Testament authors affirm this same idea. Again, listen to Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Romans or Hebrews 1, 3 and 4. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What's going on here? Jesus is the fulfillment of everything portrayed, foreshadowed, pictured, in Genesis chapter 3. Through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, uh, what we see is that he fully satisfied the Father's wrath against sin. What the animal uh, foreshadowed and, and, and for a time covered there in Eden as God killed an animal to make a covering, Jesus is the fulfillment of that once and for all. You see, as we see in, in the scriptures where he's hanging on the cross and he says, to tell us die, it is finished. What does that mean? The sacrifice it's sufficient. The payment is in full. It is done. That's what we see in Jesus Christ. He redeems the condemned in this world. So now, in Christ, the redeemed are forgiven. The redeemed are recipients of grace. Look what he goes on to say in verse 16. John 1, 16. For, in, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Wave upon wave is one way you can understand. I know you got a lot of, we got a lot of beach folks in here. We live so close. And I mean, you're thinking right now, gosh, 27 degrees this morning. I can't wait till June where it's 85 and the humidity is high, but man, we can just get to the beach and it'll just be, it'll be glorious as we sit out there on the beach. I think Gloria is here this morning and she now lives at the beach. Probably the reason she moved to the beach in Myrtle Beach is because of those waves. And so we all love the beach, right? What do you see at the beach? It's wave after wave after wave. It's like it never ends. That's the goodness of God. What John is saying here about Jesus is that when we come into relationship with him, his grace never ceases. It's one wave after another. Grace and truth. 
blessing and goodness all to us because of the redemption of Jesus Christ. Moses gave us the law, which pointed out our sin. A good thing. We need to know what our sin is. But the law can never be kept by any of us. And so if we're trying to live under the law and to fulfill the law, and we expect to be accepted under that law, we are all condemned before God. But there is one who came and fulfilled every aspect of the law, satisfied the requirements of the law. He laid his life down. So now I don't have to do that. I've trusted in Jesus, and I've received all the blessings of Jesus, and it's not just a one-time deal. No, I've been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be one day fully saved. That's the glory of what Jesus does for us. That was pretty weak as far as an amen. A couple of you guys this past week have been saying, Pastor, I want to say amen more. I didn't hear any of you guys that have told me that this week. So you're either too sleepy because you've had too much eggnog this week, or you just don't understand good theology because that is a good place to say amen, brother. Thank you, Mark, whoever that was. I'm giving the old guy credit. We serve a benevolent God. Sunday morning, most of us, if not all of us, will get up and um, we'll spend time with family. We'll exchange gifts. We'll have a big hoorah, especially those of us who have young kids at home. That's always a special time. To see the joy and the expression on their faces, they're opening a gift and excited about that. And, and that, those are beautiful things. But why do we do all of that? Think about it. Why, why do we do that? It's because some marketing scheme years ago came, uh, was created, possibly, that, that's garnered some of that. But giving gifts has been the practice of Christians for a long time. Why? It's because we have been given a gift. So in this Christmas season, let's never lose sight of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He stepped out of heaven and stepped toward you, offering himself as a beautiful, wonderful, perfect glorious sacrifice, taking your sins upon himself, bearing it in his body, bruised and broken so that you would experience that, separated from the Father so that you wouldn't eternally experience that. Why? So that now you could be in relationship with God the Father through God the Son and experience the presence of God the Spirit in your life. That's what the Lord has done for us. Emmanuel in the flesh. Those tiny shivering sparrows that we began with this morning are fluttering outside the farmer's widow, uh, window. We probably all can visualize what this would have looked like. Those birds were longing to be warm. They were longing to be fed. There's nothing to eat. It's all covered with snow and, and ice. And here's this farmer watching, watching over these birds, watching them suffer, longing to provide them with food, longing to provide them with shelter. And yet there's a disconnect there. The sparrows couldn't see him as their help. They only saw them as a threat. Therefore, the only way to lead them to safety, the only way to lead them to nourishment from his perspective would be for him to become a bird, to become like them in body, just for a moment. And then he would be able to show them the way to warmth and safety. Is that not what Jesus does for us? Jesus is the only person in history, from Adam and Eve to you and I today, who has come knowing everything that we needed and being everything that we needed in life. Sin 
It's created spiritual death within all of us. It's condemned us before a holy God. It's cut us off from his life. And yet, every time we see Jesus in the scriptures, he's stepping out on our behalf. He's stepping out toward us. We flee, not so much out of fear, but we flee out of rebellion. We're different than the birds. We actually want moral autonomy, separation from the Lord. We think that we can live our own separate individual lives and experience our own sovereignty and our own goodness and make a way for ourselves. And yet we're just like those little boards, helpless and on our way to death. But thankfully we have a God who's not left us alone to make a way for ourselves. He knows there's nothing that we can do for ourselves. And for this reason, in his grace, he stepped toward us. God the Son entered time and space to be with us. I love that fact. God stepped toward us in this world, and he dwelt in human flesh, fully revealing God to us. We don't have to wonder, what is God like? What does God look like? Does God care about me? We see it all fully on display in Jesus Christ. We don't have to wonder about that. We don't have to to, to speculate about that. We see God in Jesus. We see God the Son has redeemed those condemned by sin. So this Christmas season, let's remember that Jesus took on human flesh to save us from the condemnation and the judgment of sin. This Christmas season, let's remember that there's no greater uh, gift for us to receive than that thing in our lives. Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today? Do you know him? I'm saying, yeah, pastor, I go to church. Or, yeah, I'm in a small group. I read my Bible. I'm not talking about any of those things. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, there's a gift wrapped under the biggest tree in eternity. It's got your name on it. All you have to do is reach out and take it. Receive it. I was a religious kid doing everything I could to make a way for myself all through my teenage years. Read my Bible all the time, leader in my student ministry. Uh, freshman year of college, had a seventh grade small group that I was leading. Uh, I was looking the part, graduated from a Christian school, shared the gospel with people all the time, been on mission trips. I was trying to fit that into and make that Christianity. But you know what there was about me? There was a miserableness within me. Why? Because I was lost and I knew it. I knew that there was more to life. I knew that there was more to what it meant to know Jesus Christ. And all I was was religious. And so this morning as I asked, do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I know what it means. I know what it feels like to just have religion. I also know what it feels like and what it means to be in relationship with a God who wants to dwell with us. This morning there's a big difference. I would call you to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. All you have to do is declare, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've rebelled against you. I've done my own thing. I've tried to make my own way, and yet I know the emptiness that I feel. And so I confess that. I turn from that, and I trust you by faith to forgive my sins, and I ask you to give me eternal life. All you got to do is pray a prayer similar to that. The attitude of your heart speaks more than the words you would say. You're turning from sin and self, and you're turning to Jesus as Lord and Savior, knowing that he's the key to God the Father. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that as we pray to you, as we seek your face, you are our mediator, you are the one who stands on, in on our behalf, but you do so not just as a man, you do so as the God-man. Fully God, fully divine, as the Son of God, fully divine, fully God, as 
the Son of God in human flesh. You're the one at the very beginning who spoke creation into existence. You're the one who came in human flesh to die in the place that we deserve on the cross. The Bible tells us you're the one who will come again one day and receive those who are yours into your kingdom. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being all in all. This morning, God, I just pray that as we've thought about and looked at in Scripture over the last few weeks what it means that God is dwelling with us, I pray that the Holy Spirit has begun to draw those who are not in relationship to yourself. God, you've opened our eyes to what that means for us. You've opened our eyes to the sin that we carry, the sin that prohibits and inhibits us for being in a relationship with God. God, I pray that this morning the Holy Spirit has worked in such a way that there are people in this room, people watching us online, people who will watch in days to come, that their hearts are open and they're pliable and their yes is on the table to say, Lord God, I am a sinner and I need forgiveness and I turn to you in faith. God, I pray that would be true. As we move into a time of response this morning, help us to respond in faith and in repentance. This time is yours. Father, I pray for believers this morning who, who just want to just praise you. Lord, maybe even walking at a guilty distance and want to come home, so to speak. May this be a time of just simple faith and obedience, a return to you, a, a coming to you like never before. Lead us, guide us, may we be obedient as we sing this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.